on 89.9, The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And it is an absolute pleasure via the wonders of Zoom to have a chat to Simon Waring today. He joins us now. G'day, Simon. Hey, Clayton. Great to be here. Look, it's so good to have a, a chat to you. And um, your story is one that certainly no one sticks up their hand and says, I'd like to have this story. Um, but uh, it is yours and it is what it is. We've talked a bit and certainly I've shared uh, through the journey that I've had with a podcast around my mum's passing through cancer. And, and it's a very similar, but obviously incredibly different story for, for you in your family's life. Um, could you take us back to um, before the passing of a couple of members of your family, just describe who your family was, what's it made up of, and also, I suppose, the, the experiences that you're going through? Yeah, well, to set the scene, I guess I go back to we had a young family. My wife, Milson, was this incredibly vivacious African-Caribbean um, academic, and um, she was a beautiful stepmom to my daughter. Um, and we had had three amazing children together as well. So my daughter had got three um, little brothers. And actually, no, I'm jumping forward a bit. So if I go back a little bit, um, uh, Milson was pregnant with our third son when our toddler at the time, my son Marmaduke, um, just got a little bit off colour. And usual little bug that hits the toddler, so we thought nothing of it. He didn't quite get his appetite back after a few days, so we thought, oh, maybe we've missed a, an ear infection or something minor. Um, went to see the GP, and then it's one of those sort of down the rabbit hole stories. Um, GP couldn't find anything, but he said, oh, not letting you go till we've done a, you know, we'll check for urine. And he got a urine infection. And they said, well, unusual little boys. So, yeah, maybe there's a urethra or maybe there's a little tube might need some minor surgery, which sounded horrendous to Milson and I, but, you know, in the scheme of things. Went for an ultrasound, expected to see what we, you know, maybe a small tube that needed um, some surgery and they saw a shadow and it just so happened that the specialist on call went I think I recognize what that is I see where it's growing I think it's a you won't know this term but it's neuroblastoma which is a solid tumor I think you're going to be in the Royal Children's within days and that's kind of how that story started rolling. Um, and literally, it wasn't days because unfortunately, um, there's tests and ultrasounds and, it, and it, it was very, it was extremely rapid and he actually got raced in and thrown onto chemotherapy mm -hmm. even before we'd actually completely diagnosed the histology, but it was severe enough that he needed to start. So, I think at that stage, I was a conventional sort of corporate um, sort of comms marketer, um, working in the city, um, trying to look after a young family, trying to juggle meetings and emails. And Milson was trying to do the same with her academic career. There was no great discussion because I just had to become the full-time carer because once chemo starts you really don't want those chemicals or even you know the the 
um, cytotoxic urine mixing with a, a pregnant body, pregnant female. So um, hard though that was for Milson, it meant that I stayed by his side in the hospital probably um, in the first year. It turned out to be almost three out of every four weeks. Yeah. And, and, and Simon, were you even attempting to try and keep a job running or was it just straight out that, that I just have to leave that job? I initially, I think it's a combination of um, you enter what I call, it's almost the twilight zone for parents with that new diagnosis. You're, you're struggling with the shock. You're trying to grasp new methodologies, new protocols, new medical language. You're also trying to download as much information from professionals as you can. You're trying to avoid going insane with Dr. Google because there's so much information out there. And you're also trying to keep some level of normality for the family. And that also includes for you. So work, um, it gives you walls around you, um, but there's also, no matter what role that you do, you're often supporting others. You don't let the team down. And I was probably hanging on to it, certainly for the first few weeks, not knowing what was going to happen with the cancer, not knowing what treatment would look like, because it's too early to know. And um, oh, I remember sitting in his bedside, trying to do emails, trying to check in on meetings, trying to make phone calls in the morning after I'd been up all night, sweating over his temperature going up and down. And, and people would be going, oh, why are you ringing? Or... So it took me two or three weeks, I think, to really lever my fingers off the... <laughs> off the work door handle um and then realized no i've just got to give all my energy to my son and my family um then it did jump because i think after um to explain what happened with marmaduke the good news is within that first year he went through a typically horrendous oncology journey chemotherapy and surgery and radiotherapy but at the end of it he was NED, which is that beautiful TLA, three-letter acronym, um, not, you know, no existing disease. So he was essentially clear of his cancer. Um, it meant, however, because of his histology, they said strong chance of relapse. Um, Milsom and I was so, well, I think blissful ignorance is probably the word. Um, we were incredibly confident. Oh, well, if it comes back, we'll fight it again. Um, we were just so grateful to get him home. Mm -hmm. So we got him home. Obviously, he was in quite a, a weakened state because we'd taken his uh, immune system to zero. Yes. That's what chemo does to try and sort of beat it. And um, yes, had the usual year of horrendous dark nights and multiple runs to emergency and for the his siblings you know um sister and brothers dad's disappearing or we get everybody together and then dad has to race off after an hour because marmaduke's um temperature spiked so that just drops on you out of nowhere and you do the best you can um we thought let's celebrate we'll get some strength back into Marmaduke, wait two or three months. And then with his brothers, we took a short break up to Byron Bay, 
just to celebrate, just to breathe the air, take him out, try and find a whale. And that's actually when Milsom found a lump on her breast. And we just looked at each other and we're going, oh, cool. oh you know, it was like, there, there was a, there was a sinking feeling, but I think also because we had just spent a year in that oncology sphere, there was also this idea of, well, let's just get back on the oncology horse because it doesn't hold, be wrong to say it doesn't hold fear for us, but I think there was a familiarity. Yeah, sure. It was probably, it was less scary than it might be for someone coming at it for the first time. So then Milsom, um, went back to Melbourne and they said, sure, yeah, okay, do you know what? I know, I know it's, a, it's not a brilliant phrase, but it was almost common or garden breast cancer. We found a lump, it's not on your chest wall. However, because of where it is, I think we'd rather do a mastectomy just to be safe, but we think we've got everything. And we'll do chemo and radio just as belt and braces, which is kind of a standard protocol. Um, I, you know, Milsom was, I said she was this striking African-Caribbean woman. She had amazing braids down to her shoulders. So I do remember um, by that stage, we'd had um, our youngest son and he was still breastfeeding, say five or six months. And so I remember we literally had to wean him overnight and then she went, I'll stuff this. And she just cut all of the braids off to get ready for mastectomy and chemo. So it was, that was, that was quite a brutal night. Mm. Um, but then it was, okay, I'm going to do it. So she jumped on, did her, got onto her chemo protocol, the usual, you know, feeling quite good, do the chemo, feel horrendous, feel more, a little less horrendous, then probably the third week, you're going to get your blood test. The fourth week, you're feeling pretty good, then you do your chemo again. So it's that sort of cycle. Um, and she was juggling a little bit of work, um, but I was, I was just still full-time looking after Marmaduke, getting his strength back. Um, we managed to get him, there were a few months where we actually got him back into even childcare, so he got some normality. Um, and then about, I say, maybe four days, we were getting ready to celebrate Milson's last protocol. I think she had one radiotherapy, visit left and four days before Marmaduke relapsed um he'd we'd been out at the weekend I think and put him on a little pony ride up at St Andrew's Market and he'd sort of been on a Shetland pony and just oh wanted to get off and then at play care the next day just being a little bit ginger on his leg and so we thought let's get it checked and he'd actually broken it so the mm. cancer had been hiding in the system and it was in the top of his leg and had eaten a lot of the femur. And yeah. so suddenly this poor little kid isn't just raised back into hospital and he's relapsed, but they have to put him in a, an ankle to nipple hip spiker, the old wow. plaster armor. Wow. Which is horrendous. And, um, of course, that means he's hospital bound. Um, Milsom's doing chemo and juggling the kids and I'm back in the hospital with Marmaduke. And even then, I remember Milsom and I went in and we were 
you don't want to be there, but you've got such faith and trust in the professionals. And we had relationships with most of them. So we were almost welcoming old friends. And, okay. and we thought, oh, everyone seems so flat yeah. and depressed. But that's because, I think I mentioned it before, we had, it was our, our blissful ignorance. We, we hadn't grasped just how um, dire a relapse could be. Um, and essentially, chemotherapy, there are very limited drugs around. Um, so when they often find a new cure, it really is just a new cocktail mixing a few different old drugs that have been around since the 60s. So although we got no existing disease with Marmaduke, um, the first time around, that was the top shelf. And because it's relapsed, you're not allowed to go back to the top shelf for obvious reasons because it didn't work. So then you realise, well, actually, on the second shelf, really, it's pretty bad. There really weren't many options. So we had one option to try and we didn't really want to think much beyond that other than, okay, let's find a cure. And that's what we did. Got him back onto chemo. It's not something that we were going to know within a month. You'd know after say two, three, four protocols, whether it was having an impact, whether it was having sufficient um, effect. And Milson was struggling, obviously, with the shock of this because she was just about to celebrate finishing her own treatment. She completed that. Then we've got Marmaduke back in hospital going through horrendous treatment again. And the hip spiker didn't help because, um, and I'm, I'm, I apologize in advance for, you know, graphic imagery, but the poor kid. It's the reason they do hip spiker is because um, where his femur had almost snapped, because it had eaten away, um, if it completely broke, then all of the ligaments would just shoot up into the hip and then the idea of reattaching them would just be horrendous. So the idea is put him in a spiker, just keep him safe so he can't move anything. All of which makes sense with an adult. Um, but if you imagine a child on chemo, with they're such strong drugs that they, they give you a lot of saline, they give you a lot of fluid, to keep flushing your kidneys out. So you can imagine, um, I think this stage he would have been three. So a three-year-old getting a lot of fluid, he's, he's filling that hip spike. <laughs> We're doing our best, but it's getting pretty soggy and wet. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I begin to realize he's in a lot of discomfort. And obviously we're trying to um, be incredibly gentle with him because he's got this leg we don't want to fully break yeah and then i was getting more and more concerned within the, the system and i was going well hang on a minute and i was running between departments i was trying to get people to look and eventually we we cut a cut a little air hole on his back so we could look at his skin and let a bit of air through to dry out the hip spiker and it wasn't looking great and i was really having to advocate hard and eventually to bring a, a long story short I eventually got the right people involved and they brought an angle grinder in they cut the whole thing off because we'd got some nurses to come and have a look some stone nurses who deal with you know severe injury and they've gone they eventually cut an inspection hole and realized that looks like burns and the poor kid because he was on chemo he'd actually got cytotoxic urine flooding his body so his groin his legs his back was just oh my goodness 
and then rubbing against this. And so, and so this, when I paint that sort of story, it sounds like absolutely horrendous. But at the same time, Marmaduke's journey was completely flooded with light and joy at the same time. And so um, I'm describing this, you know, horrendous, fragile condition that he's in. But at the same time, we managed to then put a, once we've got this horrendous hip spiker off, we actually put a little skin traction. So it's like a carry on movie where he's got a traction going to the end of the bed. And the idea is to try and slow him down so he's not gonna sort of twist. Then we've got sheets over him and we're trying to air him out and he's still, and then we're trying to heal all of these wounds on his skin. Um, and so, and he's got all the chemo going on. So there were mm. so many protocols. There were oral medications, there was skin, there were drug changes. And this went on day after day. And I was, you've got to change, um, you've got to change the ankle because otherwise you'll get swelling. So I was changing that every sort of three hours. And it was, it was a lot easier for me to do it because I was the one constant. So if you get, even though you've got amazing staff coming in, um, you can't get the same nurse 24 hours a day. So it was actually a lot easier if I was the one that took responsibility because I could ensure it was done properly, correctly, the right tension. But then even that caught up with me. So I was getting pretty exhausted. So I remember one night, um, there's a reason I'm spinning this tale, but there was one night um, the nurses came ahead of me at about midnight and they said, look, you do the midnight change. We'll come and say three o'clock, we'll let you sleep, we'll do it for you. And I said, okay, you sure? And I sort of ran through the protocol with them and they said, yep. Yeah. And of course I'm sleeping in his room on the little window bench. And um, so sure enough, uh, it, it just adds another layer of stress to their role because they were coming in sort of three in the morning. They knew they were gonna have to try and move Marduk, change his dressing. They didn't wanna wake him up. They didn't wanna hurt him. They didn't want to wake up dad who's exhausted sleeping in the corner. So they've got all of that and they've got to do their role. So they creep in. They don't wake me up. They did a brilliant job. Um, they get to Marmaduke. They're using their torches. They're finding everything. And they're almost, it's almost like a cartoon where they're literally on tiptoes and whispering and they've got the torches. That was the point where Marmaduke pulled the sheet down and went, Roar! They apparently went through the roof. <laughs> and he had the biggest smile. On him. Can you imagine? And this is a kid who's got, you know, burns on his skin. He's got a broken leg. He's sick from chemo. He's got mouth sores. But, and this, this is the whole key to this whole journey. He, at no point was he ever defined by cancer. He was just a kid. He was a three-year-old wanting to have fun and have mischief. And so he was awake, he'd heard them and he wanted to play a trick. It was the best trick. And, um, and the number of times a new nurse would come in, they'd say, oh, I've heard about you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the, that's the light in the dark because it was a horrendous time, but there's such joy. There's still amazing moments even then. Yeah. Uh, and so, he was, that was probably in the first month. 
we rolled another two months and look, the chemo was working, um, but it wasn't turning the tide. And they weren't going to call it, but they were saying, yep, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll maybe go for a fourth. And I, it's, it's actually hard for me to remember, but there was a time when the thought that there wasn't a cure, that we may not be able to cure him, was this gut-wrenching fear. It was almost, yeah, it was unpalatable. It was, you almost couldn't take your mind there. It was almost, well... What if the oh no, we, okay, let's we're just going to keep going. Let's to actually sit with the thought that what would that mean? Um, there was a time when I could, I can almost feel it physically, it was in my, in my gut and in Milsom's, and it was well, oh. and and I only say that because obviously, um, then I then eventually shifted, and we, um, I think we. The idea of someone being terminal is an interesting concept because there was a time when it was unthinkable. And then at about the third month, when we tried three protocols with Marmaduke, we, were, we weren't giving up hope, but we could see it was a bit of a struggle. Um, that's when Milson relapsed herself. <laughs> so she was three months post-treatment and she was at home recovering herself after treatment because obviously your energy goes down and trying to juggle the kids which is not easy when I'm in and out of the hospital and you literally it's not about not planning a week ahead you can't even plan a day ahead and so um, there was a moment where I was home from hospital with Marmaduke maybe we had seven eight days before we had to go in again and Milsom had just crashed with what felt like the flu just went to bed on a Friday and the light was low, stayed in a room, slept, gave her some food when she needed it. Kids would say hello. By the Sunday night, it was like, oh, this is more than the flu. You know, well, that's got to get you to the GP. Oh, I can't face it. Monday morning, I got us the GP. GP marched her out to my car and said, get her to emergency. And her eyes were bright yellow, um, which we hadn't clicked in the, in the, you know, we'd obviously, she wasn't feeling well, so we kept all the lights dark in the house. Her liver was almost shutting down. Mm. Her breast cancer had metastasized to her liver. And, and I think, oh, there was over a third of it. The metastases were covering a third of it. So that by definition means you're terminal. So, this it's like this relentless change was was um but even then you don't know what does that mean is it best case best case might be three years well hang on we don't want best case we'll beat that or is it worst case you don't again you don't know um and so that meant milsom had to go on to very heavy chemo again herself to try and manage the symptoms and about a month later, um, we realized time had run out for Marmaduke in terms of a cure, because the fourth protocol, again, had an impact, but it wasn't turning the tide back. So the idea of um, submitting his body to the 
brutal regime of chemo when it actually wasn't winning. We sort of ran out of options. And at that stage, there weren't any other options. Mm. Um, there were, that's not to say there weren't maybe, there might've been a brutal option that might've been a 5% chance under a protocol of a certain hospital in a certain country. It wasn't something our consultant was comfortable with. And it wasn't something we were comfortable with. And there were maybe experimental options that the internet would tell you existed in Germany. And that creates a pressure of its own. Um, but we knew that anything experimental meant that the chance of spiking, so getting an infection where suddenly you've got to race into hospital to try and manage the infection, meant I'd be disappearing for a week at a time, mm. longer. And the fact that Milson was terminal and trying to juggle the family, it was, it was just impossible. So I think for parents of sick children, it, it, it's a very extremely challenging decision to stop slash withdraw treatment. Um, and I'd say it's even harder nowadays with social media and the internet and the availability, apparently, of cures or funding or, yeah. you know, um, where even a community may suddenly be, what? no, we're going to fundraise. So then the poor families are almost, there's almost an obligation. But, yeah. um, and it can be a brilliant thing, but it can also be putting a child through immense, immense discomfort and pain and um so i guess what i was going to say there is that for milson and i because she was terminal um yeah we were in no position to go searching for an overseas miracle we just thought well then we need marmaduke home and that that, that was basically our remit to the, the health team we need him home um we want him to be safe secure pain-free as long as possible and we want him to live the best life he can. Mm. He was terminal. Again, you don't know what that means. Um, we knew enough that it wasn't going to be weeks, but we didn't know whether it was going to be a, a year and a half, two years, whether it was going to be less than, we weren't sure. So, um, and I guess when you can't, um, you can't plan, when you're on treatment, you can't plan a week ahead because you think you're about to leave the ward and the temperature spikes and you're in again. And so it was probably the same with um, the terminal diagnosis. Well, you want to know, you want to know when it's going to happen, what it's going to look like, how it's going to be, how it's going to be for everyone. Nobody can really tell, particularly with oncology, because a cancer will work its way on the body, you know, in a, in a very individual way. So, um, our decision was really easy looking back. We just want him home. Yeah. I'm surrounded by family. Let's have the best life we can. Um, and Milson was, um, at that stage, she was doing her treatment, which was actually getting her, her strength um, within reason. I mean, it's chemo is a very interesting one that, you know, you appear to be doing really well on it and really well on it. And, and the professionals are going, it's going to hit you. Your legs are going to go eventually. Yeah. And when it happens, it happens quite quickly. And so um, she was doing really well. She was, she was um, doing chemo. 
And that was really to keep her symptoms under control and try and maintain the liver. And her hope was that eventually she'd get off the, say, the brutal um, traditional monthly chemo and perhaps move to oral tablets or a less brutal regime that would allow her to you know, maintain quite an active life with the family. She was maintaining her career. Um, she was incredibly strong, incredibly forceful, um, but mixed up with that, there was an awful, there, not an awful, that's the wrong word. There was a great vulnerability yeah. and, um, and pride, and she didn't really want to tell people that she was terminal, which is which was her choice. It was her journey. They were the shoes that she was standing in. I wasn't standing in them. I, I don't know, don't know how I, 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 unless you're in those shoes, you don't know how you're going to yeah. do it. And um, in her eyes, she wanted to beat, she wanted to live, outlive Marmaduke. She wanted to be there for him as long as she could. She wanted to be there for the rest of the family. She wanted to beat the cancer. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was a mix of denial in there as well. Um, but it was, I think, also um, when her son was terminal. It, yeah, these, they were so interlinked, those yes. conversations. And so um, she was actually maintaining her role um, as an academic, um, but obviously had a, had a few more flexible hours because of that role. So it kind of worked. And so she was managing her energy. Obviously, there was the odd week with chemo where she really wasn't great, and then other weeks she was fine. And we thought, well, what do we want to do? You know, poor Marmaduke's been in this system for so long. What would we do? And we thought, what do we love? What have we not shared? And so we went into the hospital and said, right, even though Marmaduke's got, he's still got tubes into his chest and his arteries, okay, just train us up show us how to do the dressings, do the changes ourselves without having to go to hospital. We loaded everything up and we went bush camping and we just took him off to the bush. Um, and he was by this stage, because I've mentioned his leg, which was healing. We were, hope, we were waiting for the bone to kind of grow back a little bit. Um, and he'd got a, a sort of a more modern plastic um, hip spiker around his hips just to give him a little bit of rigidity and hopefully to try and try. it's very hard to stop an active three-year-old throwing themselves off a couch or you know and so and he would hobble he'd hobble around um but to go camping I thought well, okay I was in a camping shop and I saw an old um it was outside the ski season so they had an old plastic toboggan heavy thought I'll grab that threw an enormous rope on it, and then he could actually kneel, kneel, sit upright, kneeling on it, and I could drag him along the sand, along the beach, and in fact, I could almost pull him in a few inches of water, so he's almost sliding around. He could trail his hands in the water. Oh. We took a dinghy and threw him in an inflatable dinghy and towed him around the estuary, and so he was... He just... Um, he saw lace monitors and 
um, water dragons and possums and just had an absolute ball. And it was fantastic. He was just having time of his life with the family. And that's kind of where we, that was just our whole focus. Yeah. Um, and we maintained that for a few months. And then obviously um, had the odd complication and we were coming up to his fourth birthday and he was in hospital and we were trying to find this infection. He was in pain and it's a, oh, I look back and it's probably, oh, it's one of those frustrating moments where I noticed as a parent, you are the one constant. So you're, you end up with this incredibly specialized knowledge in this very narrow field. So it's narrow and deep around neuroblastoma. And when, even though you're trying to manage his pain, I noticed his discomfort and he, he would almost subconsciously put his hand sort of on his abdomen. And I'd be trying to point this out to nurses and doctors and, and no one could really find what was wrong. And I remember um, we'd booked a, um, we booked one of the charities that supports families. Um, I think it was Challenge had had, um, had a cottage up in uh, Gippsland and we'd actually booked to go to celebrate his fourth birthday. And um, the night before we were going to get out of hospital, I, I actually fasted him because I was determined he needs an ultrasound tomorrow morning. And then in the morning, he was really unhappy because I'd fasted him. And um, the doctors came and said, oh, it's okay, we've found a urinary tract infection. So that, that's the cause, we'll load you up with lots of antibiotics. And we're going, are you sure? They said, oh yes. Of course, the difficulty with the urinary tract infection is it's so easy to get a false positive where the, 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 you know, the, the sample itself can be contaminated. Um, so we loaded up, we got out and, um, raced off now it was the middle of winter um it literally you know it was it was july and um as soon as we got there he was a bit flat and then as soon as we got there milson was flat and as soon as we got there i started feeling awful and you couldn't script it seriously it was um i went down with Look, eventually the hospital thought I got whooping cough. I didn't. They tested me for it, but it was just an ague, like a Dickensian ague. It was just coughing and aching in the bones, the flu-like symptoms. Milson could barely move. She was just aching and feeling awful. And then Marmaduke was kind of whimpering. And we'd got pain medication for him. And um, I also had... Um, access to a few little boosters so um, I could up his pain med to a certain amount occasionally if I needed to and I just I, I won't go into it it was just a few days from absolute hell and then after on about the third second day third day I'm ringing Melbourne going he's not he's not improving and they said, you're right, it can't be urinary tract infection. And because we were out in country Victoria, they said, look, you could go to a local, drive to the local hospital, but they would, yeah, they might be able to do a scan, but we'd have to interpret it. You're still, you're still going to have to come back. 
But it took us it took us 24 hours just to pack and leave. I mean, I was I was literally moving at a snail's pace. Milsom couldn't move. At one stage, um, Milsom, Marmaduke, and I were all just curled up on the bed, just not moving. Mm. And then the poor younger boys were just watching a video. It was like, it was, anyway, that was really the beginning of the end because we, um, it took about 24 hours to pack the house. I was going at snail's pace, loading everything back in. And when you've got young kids, um, yeah, you've got all the paraphernalia, all the gear, plus all the medical stuff, the Marmaduke. So we eventually left. I think I, I could only drive halfway to Melbourne and and I, I was on every possible thing I could find in, on the pharmacy shelves and they weren't working. So I just, I just had to stop. And then Milsom said, no, I'll take over. So she, she drove and um, got us back in the middle of the night and got everyone to bed. And then I just took Marmaduke in to hospital the next day. And that actually, that, that was almost one of the worst occasions ever because when we probably had two or three days where we couldn't um, help him with his pain. Yeah. yeah. As a parent, it's like a hook into the heart. It's, it's when you can't actually, you feel impotent. You just can't. Um, I could see he was in pain. We were topping it up. And look, with oncology, particularly paediatrics, you're, you're chasing pain the whole time. You're normally at almost 100% pain-free, but it can change within hours. And so you've got to be alert and flexible. Yes. Um, and so we got him into hospital, and there was this silent little bundle. And then once we'd actually got new opioids into his muscle, within half an hour, Marmaduke was back. And you mm. suddenly saw just what a cloud he'd been under and yes. then lifted with the pain. Um, and then um, this is when I think the phrase I used was, yeah, it's, it's really when the, the hut started sliding off the side of the mountain because Marmaduke and Milson both started crashing at the same time. Um, I was really worried about Milson, And so I got the nurses, we, we got Marmaduke settled down. I said, can I nip home? And so I nipped home to check on Milsom and she was exhausted. And I was kind of, well, this is about one, two in the morning. Um, okay. I, I, I was worried, but she kind of convinced me that she was just tired and okay. And I was, I was sort of, it's one of those sliding doors moment. I kind of left it, went back to hospital, but checked in the morning and she was okay. And then the next day I could get home with Marmaduke. And then that night, got him home, got him settled. And then Milson was vomiting and vomiting up blood. And I'm going, this is not right. And then she was trying to get checked out, racing off to emergency and they couldn't find anything. And I'm going, this is not, this is not quite working well. And I think within about three or four weeks of that, um, Milson just crashed. Um, to the point where she had another of those weekends where oh, just tired, in bed, really not good. Um, and 
I think on the morning I had a phone call from the hospital going, oh, yeah, she was supposed to be in for an appointment this morning, you know, the old blood test before the next round of chemo. And then her consultant said, I really need to see her. I said, okay. And so I forced her out of bed, got her in to see him. He said, no, your blood results came back and they've just crashed. And now at this stage, um, again, I may have been in a state of ignorance, but um, at that stage, I thought Milsom and I thought maybe she's, we, we knew best case was three years. That was hopeful, but we were thinking one to two years. And that's when they said, you've got weeks, not months. Mm. And um, we, I said, okay. And obviously with, with when the cancer affects the liver, it affects the blood, it can't, so then you get polluted blood, you're not getting enough oxygen to the brain. So they really needed to stabilize her body. So they stabilized her over about three days. And um, I remember, um, they said, oh, it's been fun. We've stabilized you. It's worked really well. We're so pleased. And I just cut across. I said, Milsom, nothing's changed. What they're saying is the stabilization has worked. And she said, you mean it's still weeks, not months? I said, yes. And the weeks, well, she lasted nine days. And so that actually brought a different element to the whole relentless journey because there was although there was death I think there was trauma associated with that because it was so sudden um sounds a bit odd when you're talking about a terminal journey that it was sudden but it was because we we hadn't um prepared for it um and I was trying to juggle everything um her friends work colleagues the works but also, Marmaduke was on 24-7 care. So he was at home. Um, we'd created this amazing environment around him. And so um, when she was in hospital, we created a little family room so that um, I could bring the kids in and then they could go in and see her briefly and then come back out. And we keep them occupied and I'd sit with her. But also it meant that Marmaduke, because he got he was in the hip spiker, he was kind of in a pusher. Um, and then my youngest, Rafi, was also in a push at that time because of his age. And so I'm sort of juggling. I was, I was sort of getting them up, getting them up in the morning, getting Felix, getting um, one off to school, one to childcare, and then and either taking one or both into the hospital. And then I was juggling. We, we did this amazing thing where we'd be like, okay, um, he's on drugs. We've got to change the drugs each day now maybe protocols have changed but at that stage I wasn't allowed to change the drug so you needed a pal care nurse to come in and, and change the driver and so we had a mobile nurse coming in but I was my bat phone as it were was to the pal care at the World Children's and so often I'd be going okay I'll be on the bat phone okay this is what happened last night he did this 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 and this we're here we're here we're here I'm running low on these drugs by the way I'm going in to see Mills I'm going to be at this hospital this morning, which means I'd miss the nurse visiting the home. So then we'd get, they, they did what was needed. They'd jump in a taxi, they'd get the drugs down to where I was. And by hook or by crook, we got it all sorted. But it was, I, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's that 
the, the, the cliche, it's those plates on poles mm-hmm. see in a circus act. Yeah. And all of those, those, they all need to keep spinning. And in a way, the, ma- the major plates were obviously um, Marmaduke and Milson uh, and all the and all the, the health protocols that were, were required. But then you also had plates for each of the children um, because children are, they're all part of this. Um, this they, they often become orphans in that journey because conversations aren't about them. If anyone comes to the house, it's often a health professional. If there's a conversation, it's often about the patient, um, whether that's, in our case, it was about Marmaduke or Milsom. In other cases, it might be it might be about grandma who's in the room at the end of the house and no one wants to talk about it. And, and so um, for whatever reason, those plates, we just kept them going. I mean, I, I, clearly at certain stages, yeah, I was, I was reaching out with hands and spinning them. And I think at others, I was probably, in, if we think about on stage, I'd be reaching out with a toe behind my back. Some, I mean, somehow you'd, you, you kept them up. And then by the end, by the time we've reached the end of that journey, um, if I look back realistically, I was probably running on adrenaline. I would have exhausted most of my reserves sometime before. And so, again, you're able to do this. I was propped up by the palliative care service because I've got really good advice on the phone. I've got people coming into the, into the house if I needed it. I've got equipment um, coming to make things comfortable for Marmaduke. And so that allowed us to then craft this extraordinary environment. So that it, it was, um, if I jump, I'm, I'm, I don't know how I'm going with my timeline, I'm jumping around a bit, but um, I, two things stick out. And, and there were two, shall we say, um, I'll use inverted commas of vigils that I had. Um, because juggling with Milson, because she crashed so quickly, um, I spent most of my time in the hospital um, just making sure she was comfortable, calming her down, talking to her, just being with her, um, but also then juggling the kids, juggling Marmaduke's medication. And then also it's the classic, um, as you would well know as well, Clayton, is you're often manning the phone, almost protecting the patient from well-intentioned friends, relatives who all want to come in but often that exhausts the energy of the patients. And you've, so you're actually playing gatekeeper as well. Um, and so I didn't really have a night to myself with Milson. So I remember one day we actually got it arranged. There was a, um, a nurse volunteered to come out from the children's and actually sit with Marmaduke all night. And I had a friend who arranged to come and sleep in the house with my kids. And so we'd all been in the hospital with Milson. We left about six, seven, got everyone home. And then I was just fussing, making sure everyone had got their food and were organized and everything was sorted. And I got out at about half nine, got into the hospital about 10 to see Milson, who was just lying in the bed, staring, just comatose, no movement. And the nurses came up and they said, um, oh, would you like us to get you a bed so we can put you next to Milson? I said, that would be fantastic. And I, I was exhausted. Um, and I, I just went to the family room 
um, just next to Milson's bed and sat on the couch. And I was, and they said, um, oh, I'm so sorry, we can't find a bed. I said, look, it's okay. If I just get a blanket, I can just lie here. And I remember putting my head down on a cushion and that was it. And then an hour later, they were waking me up to say, oh, oh, Mr. Waring, I'm sorry, your wife has passed away. Mm. And um, I remember my thought at the time was, um, and I don't know where, where it came from. I must have heard it. It was almost, well, because different friends had come in and, you know, had time with Milson. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe we had nothing left to say. Like it wasn't that it was that critical for me to get that moment. Um, and then I think back, actually, I, and I thought, okay, well, maybe she did pass away just as I got there. It was almost that allowed her to go. I didn't know. Um, but that was the vigil that never really, <laughs> never really happened. In the end, I, it just allowed me. I, I then spent a few hours afterwards just sitting by her bed talking to her. Yeah. Gave me time away from everyone else to prepare myself. And, um, and then I went home. And of course, woke up in the morning and I was thinking, oh, how, do I sell, how do I tell the kids? That was the first thought. And then I strategized and thought. And, and then, of course, Marmaduke, bang, he's up in the morning. He needs to be looked after. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of space to process my own grief around Wilson. Um, and I, looking back, I know that I was also absolutely, I was in that survivor mode, um, which is what allowed me just to pull yeah. it together. Um, but then um, Milsom and I, just the way we both originally from the UK, neither of us um, have family in Australia. And I remember when Marmaduke first got sick, we were going, Phew, this is going to be a bit tough. We had no idea. <laughs> like, it was, we didn't know what awaited us. And so um, I had... Uh, um, I had a sister who was going to fly in um, to, to help us from Europe, um, which is, look, a strange detail, which I'll throw in. Um, my mum had also been, um, well, I say terminal. She'd had a stroke and had been recovering from it in France, where she was living. And, um, but had then had complications where the stroke affects the brain, a few little scar, little bit of scarring, then created epileptic fits, and then she'd have the occasional fit, and then you've suddenly got all the physical damage, and then the body's not at optimum level, so it's not healing as well. So it was a little bit one step forward, two steps back. And at the beginning of that year, things had really sort of advanced, and then she got to the stage where... Um, she was almost wholly dependent on everybody else because um, physically her left side wasn't coming back and her right side wasn't coming back. And um, she clearly had lived a full life and was clearly ready to go. And um, I hesitate when I say this, but the most normal thing that happened in that year is that my, when my mum died mm. because I knew that... She was then out. She'd been released from all the, the pain 
and the discomfort she was in, I knew that she was really comfortable with that. And she would have been 80, 81. So she was, um, you know, I was juggling two t- terminal journeys almost before that, almost out of the natural timeline. Yes. Like a young child and a young wife. You think, well, no. so actually for my mum, she knew, we spoke, but she knew I wouldn't be able to get there because I, I was literally in a hospital room with Marmaduke when she died. But, um, and that had also meant that my family really couldn't come over because they were juggling this journey for a long time. So, and then after that, my sister would have been in the same basis as I was, just on adrenaline, so she was recovering. And so, um, say three months later, she was ready to come over. Um, so she was flying over. Um, she had a feeling Milson would die before she got here, and that's exactly what happened. And then I was juggling the family. And then about three days later, so three, what, maybe four days after Milson died, Marmaduke just crashed. And I thought, oh, crikey. And I was up all night. Nothing I gave him was working. The pains were, t- were medication wasn't touching the sides. So in the morning, um, I literally got him on my arms and I raced to the front door, opened the door, and my sister's hand was on the other side. She'd just arrived from the airport. I said, I've got to go to emergency. And she just came in the house. And um, I, don't, I don't think it was till three or four o'clock, she rang me and said, um, now, yeah, just double-checking sort of mealtimes, bedtimes. <laughs> and I had felt so confident, oh, that she was here. Yeah. Hadn't even occurred to me, hang on. She'd never even met the children. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Or actually, hadn't even shown around the house. <laughs> Trust. Um, and, and so we stabilized Marmaduke in hospital. And then the next day, um, it was, um, I know I was talking about a vigil. I will get there. I was like, <laughs> This, this leads up to it. But the next day, we had the most extraordinary time where um, the hospital met us and said, uh, I'm afraid he's dying, like he's going now. We think you should say goodbye. So we got the family in to say goodbye. Um, this was the afternoon that I was meeting the funeral director to plan my wife's funeral. And of course... I was in the hospital, so she came in to see me, which would have been a very hard thing for her to do. She's coming in knowing that my son's in another room. I mean, very, very challenging. Um, And I'm, you know, as I say, exhausted and on adrenaline, so I'm there trying to make sense of all these things and then trying to make dark, humorous jokes about two for one and... Which is the reality sometimes. It's 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 like um, my sister understood my humour, but it was like, well, hang on, what do we do? And she said, well, um, what are you going to do? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, if your son's sick but you have the funeral, what are you going to do? So, who's going to be with your son? I said, well, I am. I said, no, no, yes, I understand that. But if you're going to have the funeral for your wife, who's going to be your second choice? I said, I am. I, I, I said, I understand it. I know that I've, I've been here for so long. I said, but I can't. I just can't have anyone else sit there if he was going to die. I sort of, um, 
So then we had, honestly, it was, it was like playing hypotheticals. It was, well, then do we cancel the funeral? Well, now I've got, I've got relatives in midair. And she said, well, it's not about them, it's about you. I need to look after you. And so we actually reached a point where she said, well, okay, we will have the funeral. If everything's fine, we all go. If things aren't fine, we'll have a public funeral, but the family will stay home because I couldn't send my children without me. Yeah, of course. And we do, a, you know, so we're trying to juggle all these hypotheticals. And I was in no state. She went. Then we're saying goodbye. And then everybody goes and I'm left with Marmaduke in this hospital room. And he's just lying on his side, very weakened state. And, um, but I get my vigil. And, um, and they said, he's going, he's going. And so even a busy hospital gets very quiet in the early hours of the morning. And you literally do hear the birds come up and light comes through the windows. And I, I wasn't really talking with him. I was just talking to him. I was just sitting with him, talking to him, talking to Milsom as well. And um, the light came up and it, I opened the shutters, sort of came into the room and his head was on the pillow, but his eyes opened and he actually stared right at me. And then he got this little crooked index finger and he said, I'd like a baby Chino and my special juice. <laughs> because I used to go down and, and get a fresh fruit yes. and veg to his particular recipe and I was like well overjoyed and gobsmacked and um and then some of the hospital staff were so apologetic they said I'm sorry we thought he was dying that night but then that's pediatrics you yeah you do not know and then they said would you like to take him home and I had already made peace that I wouldn't get him at home. I'd made peace. Okay, he's going to die in hospital, but he's going to be surrounded by staff that I respect and that he knows and likes. And, um, and I was going, can we? And I was choking up. Is it possible? Can we? Really? And they said, yeah. And literally within that afternoon, they organized you know, a new hospital bed, electric mattress, everything that he would need to install him in his room. And we got him home in his room, surrounded by his colours and smells and toys. Um, his sister lay on the bed with him. His brothers jumped in and out, watched videos, nicked his toys, ran off. And we just, considering I'd sat there for my vigil, we then had the most extraordinary, and it was extraordinary, five weeks with him at home. It was just beautiful. Um, we created... Look, it was intentional, but it wasn't as though we had a strategy. It's just what we did. But we created a cocoon around him. We took fear out of the room. There were no whispered conversations around the bedside. Um, if any visiting professional showed the slightest signs of tension or they were going to do something that might um, affect his equilibrium, we take them to one side and coach them. And it literally was, no, you walk in his room, it's just joy. He's waking up. He wants fun. He wants to be entertained. He obviously has his energy um, yeah. 
declined, he still wanted joy, he still wanted love, he still wanted to be touched. And so by getting him at home, we were able, there was not a, an hour when he was not held, as in physically held. He had, um, he had an adult or he had a teenager literally lying on his bed, holding him. Um, his sister slept with him at night. He was, he was so held. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, he was, it, it was that proverbial, his, his brow was wiped. You know, there was, there was uh, you know, if with mouth sores, he wasn't able to, he wasn't feeling like eating strawberries. He loved the cool sensation on his lips or on his cheek. He, he loved his eye, his face lit up at the side of a chupa chup, um, a little lollipop with a wrapper. And um, it was almost, he'd go to sleep with, he'd often wake up, you'd find them in the bedclothes because he'd hold three in his hand. And so um, it just became a pattern where um, we'd just be looking after his needs and then just spending beautiful time as a family around. And um, then we just, once everything had bedded down, be my sister and I and, and my daughter, and we'd be sitting around the kitchen table going, and the number of times we said, this sounds strange, but it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? And it, yeah. it was a, we were, around oncology, I'm conscious that I've been a carer. And so it hasn't been my journey. I, I know that that concept of a journey is very emotional for people who've had cancer. Some people really hate it. Some carers hate it. Don't call it a journey. So I'm apologizing for that word for those that, that, that find it offensive. But for me, it was, a, it was a journey. And to be part of his journey and our journey, we were all, um, it was all unexpected, but it was, um, and I think it was all the more extraordinary because of the shock of what happened with Milson. Yes. But that we didn't get that time that we wanted. Yes. And, um, as you know, Clayton, I do quite a lot of talking about palliative care and I, and in a way, everything that we managed to achieve with Marmaduke is what we didn't manage to achieve with Milsom. It's not that the staff weren't caring or, but in terms of the choice of the environment, how we were able to prepare for it, there's lots of things we would have done differently yeah. um, and we weren't able to get her home. But with Marmaduke, we were able to have this most extraordinary time so that I remember um, racing off because the routines didn't change, even though he had, we, you know, school, childcare, this all still had to happen. So I remember one morning, yep, the nurse, the number of times actually I had a nurse going, oh, he's going to go, he's going, he's going. And then and they'd say, well, when did you last hear him make a, a sound? I'd say, oh about 20 minutes ago when he told his sister he loved her and they're going, what? You know, because when you've got this cocoon, you're alive to the subtlest yeah. movements, subtlest of gestures. It can sometimes just be the crinkling of the face, but there's, there is communication going on. And, um, and I remember on this particular day, the nurse was looking at me, oh, he's, he's, you know, he's not looking too good. And I said, no, I understand. And I raced off, dropped two of the boys at school in childcare, came back. And um, at that stage, um, my daughter was with him. 
And it was early, it was probably about nine, half nine. And so time for a shower. She said, okay. So she got everything and she was, I remember at the door, she said, it was almost like, I'm just going to look back. Just doubled, should I go? And almost as soon as the shower started, I was holding his hand, just sitting by the bed and I suddenly went, oh, you've gone. And he, and he, so he went. I could feel it. It was, and I'd, um, and we'd had this conversation. We said, you do realize he's probably going to choose a time when da, 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 you're getting changed. Yes. Yeah. And so, but again, that was the, the most subtle of gestures. You're alive to those amazing yeah. moments because you're just really present and calm and quiet and yeah. the fear is put to one side. And so that's why it was, um, it was an extraordinary time. It, I, and I've, I strongly believe that the ability, that time we had, the way we were able to just sit with Marmaduke towards the end of his life actually helped all of us in our different ways and not just cope with it, but also cope with the with the growth you know the growth yeah. from processing of grief and um so yeah it was extraordinary yeah um simon there's you know really sort of one question left i think really as we we hear it and and thank you so much for sharing the journey like for for letting us hear um and describing where it is and we understand that that's only up to that point right we we there's so much that goes beyond that as well um, I know your heart and certainly our heart uh, on this program is a bit about how do we help others now? So having your experience, um, the, 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 the joys of the, the vigils and the moments and the, the tough stuff and the, and the pain of all of it, um, what, what's your encouragement to us? Uh, I'd imagine, you know, you'd be questioning, well, why is it my wife and my son that went, not me, and all those sorts of things that I'm assuming have gone through your mind. But what's your encouragement to us um, as as we hear your story and the way we should be living life? I think, and I, and I don't, I don't want to fall into cliches, but I think it's the power of being present um, and truly valuing what's in front of you. And look, it's that beautiful line from that the French. Um, the little prince. Um, what's truly important is invisible to the eye. And um, when Marmaduke got sick, yes, I could worry about emails and meetings and letting people down. But what's truly, it, yeah, it just evaporates. That's not really important. So um, everyone, anyone listening, whether it's a partner or a child, there are people in your life that you may be missing some opportunities with right now. And so it's, it does sound, it sounds a little simplistic, go and hug your partner, go and hug your children close, but um, you don't know, this is the whole thing, you don't know what's around the corner. Yeah. So um, don't wait until you've got a horrendous illness to change your perspective. You can change that perspective right now yeah yeah it's great and simon are you being cared for now like you you were clearly this carer right it was a it was a more than obviously a job it was the the calling you had in that moment and, and we can hear the the immense um privilege that you have as you walk through it as well as the draining energy of it 
But even as these years are on from there, how, how are you cared for during these times? Um, I, I think I mentioned that survivor model before where I, I recognised that I was in survivor mode and there were aspects... Um, I had a, um, I've always, I, I used to be a shiatsu practitioner. And so that sense of being grounded, being with the breath was, that actually gave me a physical and, and sort of philosophical grounding. Um, but I think I recognized that even though it was a relentless change, um, when you're then trying to bring a family through grief, that's a slow recovery. Mm. And then once you've recovered, you then it's a slow journey to flourishing. And so um, the challenges almost never stopped. And so I, I did recognize that I hadn't actually processed some of my grief. I think with Marmaduke, because of the length of his journey, I'd processed a lot beforehand. And we had such an intense relationship that I was incredibly accepting when he died. And... I just have incredible gratitude for what I had, not so much what we lost, but what I had. And that's with me today. Um, I think with Milsom, I, it took me a while to realize um, some of the armor I'd put on to survive that relentless change and the cancer journey needed to be shed because eventually it becomes limiting afterwards. And so it was getting in the way of me of my flourishing or my new relationship or, and so, um, yeah, I, I did a lot of, I'm writing a book at the moment. I've done a lot of writing, a lot of speaking, done a lot of therapy as well, counseling, just, just to explore and understand all of those threads. Um, and also, um, for me, the greatest thing has been nurturing in the countryside, like getting grounded in the sea, the waves, the river, the same with the children as well. And so um, it's still that idea of being present is something that, that that's probably what's healing for me now. Yeah. If, I look, if I look at the light, if I look at nature. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, Simon, thanks for being an example of um, immense love. <laughs> I think we can clearly uh, see that through your story. But, um, you know, resilience in, in its truest sense um, as well as gratitude. Uh, there's a remarkable mix of what you bring in your story and in the telling of it and uh, clearly the living of it. Um, we just want to say thank you for sharing today. Thank you for being a part of it, for being vulnerable enough. And, um, you know, as you tell the story, we can see and hear the tears coming even as it, and that, and that, that always costs something to share again. So we thank you so much for that. No, thank you, Clayton. Simon Waring, my guest here on 89.9 the light and we just want to give you our care line number two maybe if something that simon has talked through right now has just brought something up and you need to talk you just need to be with somebody chat with somebody even maybe pray with the, someone if you'd like you can call them 9583 9583 care if you use the letter pad on your phone